precious book of Daniel, Lord, we ask that we would be humbled and our hearts would be lowered as we see the great God who you are, Lord. I ask that you would help us to see our own pride, to take delight and joy in you, your sovereignty, your power, your kingship, and yours alone. Amen. You can be seated. Amen. Amen. He is king of kings forever. He reigns, he rules, he is the sovereign over all things. He is king of kings. My question is, when was the last time that you felt like he wasn't? When was the last time where you felt like he was not in control? You knew intellectually, you knew biblically, he is sovereign, he is in control, but you felt like this world is out of control. Something that you had power over or control over, somebody that you loved very dearly, something that meant a lot to you, you're losing it, it's slipping out of your fingers, out of your grasp, and you wonder, God, are you truly in control? Do you truly care? Today is September 11th. You remember watching those horrific images on television of those Twin Towers getting hit by the planes and going down and maybe it was that moment that you remember watching and thinking, I have zero control of anything. Anyone can do this anytime, anywhere. Maybe it's recent shootings. Maybe it's something more personal. Maybe it's a relationship, a relative. Maybe it's a work situation. But you just feel like I know God is in control intellectually, but I don't feel like he is, and I'm struggling to really believe it. When it comes to politics, I think that that happens all the time. The current worldwide political situation can be unsettling. It can be fearful. But the book of Daniel has been reminding us over and over again of what we just sang. He is king of kings. He rules and he reigns over every king, over every kingdom. There is no individual who is outside of his plan, who is outside of his sovereignty. There is no maverick molecule in the universe. He allows, he ordains, sometimes through tears as he sees his own children weeping. But he has a plan and a purpose for all of it. God is sovereign over the rise and fall of empires and he's sovereign over every molecule in Adam. So Martin Luther penned those words, in a mighty fortress is our God, that word above all earthly powers. He is king over every single kingdom. And we will see in Daniel chapter 5 this morning the reality of God being sovereign over a king who thought he was the ruler of the world. And in one single night, the mightiest of empires in the known day at that time is going to fall. If you have your copy of God's word, Daniel chapter 5 is where we are. We spent the last two weeks on a bit of a detour looking at pride and humility, what God says about pride. After we saw Nebuchadnezzar and his gross pride and God humbling him, now we get to move on to another king who uh, just very quickly has a prideful episode that God squishes instantly. And this chapter, chapter 5, describes that transition. Remember Nebuchadnezzar's dream in Daniel chapter 2, the head of gold and the chest of silver and the arms of silver. That's what's happening here. Babylon is going to give way to Medo-Persia. And in doing so, this entire chapter gives us the transition in world history from Babylon ruling and reigning to Medo-Persia ruling and reigning. And I think in the middle of all that the Israelites had gone through, you remember they've been captive in Babylon for almost 70 years, wondering, God, where are you? When are you going to move? When are you going to act? We are staying in this pagan nation. Where are you? What are you waiting for? And this would have been a reminder yet again. God is sovereign. He is in control. Just watch what he does to wicked rulers, to individuals who place themselves on a pedestal and say, I am king over my own kingdom. And in this chapter, we will see four 
critical lessons on God's sovereignty over political leaders, over their empires, and over individuals. We'll look at two of those lessons this morning, and Lord willing, next week we'll look at the last two in Daniel chapter 5. Let's read this together. Daniel chapter 5, verses 1 through 16, as we begin our time this morning. Daniel writes, Belshazzar the king held a great feast for 1,000 of his nobles, and he was drinking wine in the presence of the thousand. When Belshazzar tasted the wine, he said to bring the gold and the silver vessels which Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple which was in Jerusalem, so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. And they brought the gold vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God which is in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, drank from them. They drank the wine, and they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. But suddenly, the fingers of a man's hand came out and began writing opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the back of the hand that did the writing. Then the splendor of the king's face changed, and his thoughts alarmed him. And his hip joints went slack, and his knees were knocking against each other. The king called out loudly to bring in the conjurers, the Chaldeans, and the diviners. And the king answered and said to the wise men of Babylon, Any man who can read this writing and declare its interpretation to me shall be clothed with purple and have a gold necklace around his neck and rule with power as third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known its interpretation to the king. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and the splendor of his face changed further, and his nobles were perplexed. The queen entered the banquet hall because of the words of the king and his nobles, and the queen answered and said, O king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts alarm you or the splendor of your face be changed. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is a spirit of the holy gods, and in the days of your father, illumination, insight, and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods was found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, set him as chief of the magicians, conjurers, Chaldeans, and diviners. This was because an extraordinary spirit, knowledge, and insight, interpretation of dreams, explanation of enigmas, and solving of difficult problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Let Daniel now be summoned, and he will declare the interpretation. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, Are you that Daniel, who was one of the exiles from Judah, whom my father, the king, brought from Judah? Now I've heard about you, that a spirit of the gods is in you, and that illumination, insight, and extraordinary wisdom have been found in you. Just now the wise men and the conjurers were brought in before me that they might read this writing and make known its interpretation to me, but they could not declare the interpretation of the message. But I personally have heard about you, you are able to give interpretations and solve difficult problems. Now, if you are able to read the writing and make its interpretation known to me, you'll be clothed with purple. You'll wear a necklace of gold around your neck, and you will rule with power as the third ruler in the kingdom. Father, we thank you for these precious words your words, the words of the living God, and we ask that you would write their eternal truths on our hearts even in this moment. We do not want to be little Belshazzars who think that we on our own are able with self-sufficiency to rule ourselves, to be autonomous, to be independent from you. We need your help. We need your assistance. We need divine assistance today. We need the gift of illumination. We need you to open our eyes. And that's why we pray every Lord's Day, Holy Spirit, open our eyes that we would behold wonderful things from your law. Enable us to internalize these truths that they wouldn't just stay in some grand scale political understanding, but they would, they would find their way deep into our hearts individually, personally. You would challenge us, encourage us, convict us comfort us, and lead us to Christ today. We pray by the power of your word and by the power of your spirit. 
In the name of Christ our Savior, amen. Daniel chapter 5 begins in verse 1 with the statement, Belshazzar the king held a great feast for 1,000 of his nobles. And right off the bat, we have to ask the question, who is this guy? We just ended chapter 4. We left Nebuchadnezzar. We saw a lot of information, a lot of ink spilled on Nebuchadnezzar. And now we just open up with one verse that says Belshazzar. We have no indication of who he is. We have no record of what's going on. We just get a name drop and we're moving on into his story. And he only gets a chapter and he's gone. Who is this guy? Well, we have to fast forward again from chapter 4. Remember, we fast forwarded a couple times already. Belshazzar, we're going to fast forward to the very end of the Babylonian kingdom. So allow me the privilege of nerding out just for a little bit, okay? You didn't expect a history lesson. You, you have to get a history lesson to understand this, okay? And I, I think that there's some uh, very pertinent information to what's going to happen here. And I also believe there's significant apologetic understanding because this text has been one that's been used over the past centuries to disprove the Bible. That's why you need to know what I'm about to say. So, number one, King Nebuchadnezzar died in 562 B.C. after a reign of 43 years. Reigned for a long time, he died. After his death, which occurs 20 years before the events of chapter 5, there is an immediate scramble for the throne. Who's going to take over as king? And in six years after Nebuchadnezzar's death, there are four different kings who rule and reign in Babylon. So they're not understanding who's going to reign, who's going to rule. So, after Nebuchadnezzar dies... He's followed by his son, a guy by the name of Amel Marduk, who, ru- who rules for two years from 562 to 560 and is assassinated by uh, Nebuchadnezzar's son-in-law. So he's killed. Two years, he's killed. Nebuchadnezzar's son-in-law, a guy by the name of Neri Glisar, reigned for four years. That's the guy that assassinated Amel Marduk, and he reigns for, five, for four years from 560 to 556, and then he dies. When he dies, his son, Labashi Marduk, is a grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, and he's only a child. He's a youth. He's about 12 years old. He reigns for nine months until a conspiracy results in him being beaten to death, and that conspiracy, that group, elects a man by the name of Nabonidus to rule and to reign as king in Babylon. And Nabonidus rules and reigns for 17 years, and then Babylon's going to be destroyed by the Persians. Now, all of that... Nabonidus is Belshazzar's dad. Okay, Nabonidus is Belshazzar's dad. And Nabonidus and Belshazzar work together. Here's why this was a huge issue. We have record all over the place of Nabonidus being the last king in Babylon, the last ruler in Babylon. And the Persians are going to come in and destroy Nabonidus. Up until the mid-1800s, we had zero reference to Belshazzar at all, except for in the Bible. And so it was used often to say, see, the Bible's not true. It's talking about this man named Belshazzar. We don't know who it is. But we know exactly what happened now. We've uncovered so much archaeological evidence for Belshazzar. We know what's happened. So, Nabonidus ruling and reigning in Babylon. The main god over Babylon, Marduk. Nabonidus doesn't like Marduk. And he wants to change Babylon, not to worship Marduk anymore, but to worship this god named Sin. It's pronounced S-I-N. It's the god of sin, I guess. But the god named Sin, he wants Babylon to worship this god. There are other places in the outskirts of Babylon that are worshiping this moon god. And so Nabonidus says, let's all worship him in the the midst of Babylon, in the temples of Babylon. Let's worship him as our god. But all of Babylon says, we don't really want to do that. So he decides to move away 500 miles to the north in the northern Arabian desert in a place called Tama. And he rules and he reigns in Tama, and he leaves his son Belshazzar in Babylon to rule as kind of his co-regent down in Babylon. And so Nabonidus, 500 miles away, is going to be killed by the Persians, and Belshazzar is going to rule and reign for a little while and be killed by the Persians as well. For a period of 14 years, in fact, Nabonidus, as king over Babylon, is not even in Babylon. He's somewhere else completely. 
And again, we didn't find out about Belshazzar extra-biblically until about 2000, uh, for about 2,000 years. Liberal scholars would use that all the time to say that the Bible's not true. But in 1853 and 1854, a man by the name of George Taylor, an archaeologist and an emissary of the British Museum, excavated this exact palace. We know where this palace is. We've excavated it. We can see it. We can identify exactly where the writing on the wall happened. And we have a commemoration of repairs of this temple and of this palace. And in the commemoration, there are notes written. There's a prayer for Nabonidus the king and Belshazzar his son. And when we found that in the mid-1800s, all the liberal scholars went, well, that stinks. I guess, I guess the Bible is true. One pastor says it this way, if you want to look wise in the world's eyes and are willing to look foolish years from now, just make a reputation for yourself by pointing out the errors that are in the Bible. Because in a matter of days, months, years, you will be proven to be wrong. And that's what we found. And the more that we dug, the more that we found. And the more that we found, the more we saw inscriptions about Nabonidus giving charge to Belshazzar in Babylon because he wanted to leave and go to Tama. And we have an inscription from Belshazzar himself that his dad had left to a distant place and he didn't know when he was going to return. Finally, we have now more than 37 texts that prove Belshazzar's existence extra-biblically outside of the Bible, and they date back to the very first year that he began reigning in the 14th year of the reign of Nabonidus down in Babylon. So they prove he's a historical person. His name, Belshazzar, means Bel, Marduk, uh, the king, the, the god over Babylon, protect the king. Belshazzar, Bel, protect the king. Please protect the king which is an irony because he's absolutely not going to be protected. When I told my kids that, I said, yeah, his name means uh, Bell, protect the king. Uh, they didn't understand what I was saying, so I was able to say it. it's a prayer. His name is a prayer. May this king never be destroyed because Marduk is protecting him. And my son goes, ha, that didn't happen. And I said, exactly. That's the whole point of this chapter. Belshazzar is a very wicked man. He's legendary when it comes to evil things that he did. He's grossly immoral, as you can see in this text, with wives and concubines. He also killed, he murdered, uh, the son of one of his father's governors during a hunting trip. Maybe a stray arrow gone awry. He's a wicked man. He began his reign in 553 B.C. And because of that, this, this is the end of our history lesson, this tells us something very important. His reign, and you can read this in chapter 7 and 8, his reign began... And Daniel received visions about how his reign was going to end, and those visions are recorded in chapter 7 and 8. So chapter 7 and 8 chronologically go before chapter 5. But you remember what Daniel is doing is over the 70 years that he's been in captivity, he's just giving us some vignettes to prove a point about who our God is. So in the narrative portion of Daniel, and we're coming to the very end of it, in the narrative portion of Daniel, Daniel's going to front load it with events that will tell of the sovereignty of God. God gave Nebuchadnezzar a very long time to live in his sin, to live in his wickedness. God's not going to give that time to Belshazzar. These uh, chapters, uh, chapter 7 and 8, probably occur 12 years before the events of chapter 5 because chapter 5 is the very end of his reign. Belshazzar, verse 1, the king holds a great feast for 1,000 of his nobles and he's drinking wine. That's an Aramaic participle. So he's continually drinking wine. He's going to get drunk and he's in the presence of thousands of people. It seems like maybe a little bit too uh, overboard on inviting the guests, but it was a common thing. Impress the people around you by your extravagance. One Persian king fed uh, 15,000 people every day. History records this man would feed 15,000 people to prove, look at how awesome I am, look at how uh, much of a benefactor I am, look at how I am providing for you. Alexander the Great hosted a wedding to which he invited 10,000 guests 10,000 guests. Those of you who are planning weddings, imagine uh, inviting 10,000 people. Imagine all the gifts that you're going to be getting, all the same style of toaster that you're going to get. In Esther chapter 1, Xerxes held a feast for a large number of people. We're not told how many, but it was a feast for 180 days. You remember in our study in the book of Esther. So this isn't unique. This is something that would be happening to demonstrate how awesome Belshazzar is. And it takes only 11 Aramaic words in one verse to plunk us right down in the banquet hall at the banquet table 
There, there have been a lot of warm-ups to a lot of the stories up until now. But here, Daniel just wants to get to the point of the story. He wants to bypass all of the historical background. He just tells us there's a king, he's having a party, and let's get to the story. And it's almost as if Daniel has sympathy for Nebuchadnezzar. And I believe Nebuchadnezzar got saved at the end of his life. So it's almost as if Daniel has a little bit more sympathy for Nebuchadnezzar. But for Belshazzar, forget about him. Let's move to the story and prove how awesome God is. So he's throwing a party. He tastes the wine, verse 2, at this party. This party is being thrown for three main reasons. Uh, the first one's speculation. Maybe this is kind of a coronation of Belshazzar as king because Nabonidus is going to die, not in Babylon, outside in Tama. He's going to die. Uh, Persia is going to come in, destroy Tama, kill Nabonidus, and then come down to Babylon and kill Belshazzar. So Belshazzar is going to stay alive after Nabonidus dies. So maybe this is a coronation of him as king. He's saying, let's feast and enjoy uh, the, the reality that I'm the king now. I'm, I'm full king. I'm not a co-regent anymore. Maybe it's that. For sure, number two, we know the second reason for sure that this feast is happening. This day, the day of this feast, is a feast that honors the gods of Babylon. We know two historians tell us about this in the 4th and 5th century B.C. There are two different historians. There's Herodotus, maybe a familiar name to you apologists out there who want to study people that can prove the Bible's true outside of the Bible. And then there's uh, Xenophon, who is also a very helpful historian that will give us information about what's happening. And they both tell us exactly what was going on at this festival. We know the exact date of this festival. It was either October 11th or October 12th, 539 B.C. We know exactly when it happened because we know when Persia took over Babylon and killed Belshazzar. Babylon's going to fall on the 16th day of Tishri, and so that means that it's either October 11th or October 12th. And so this festival is a festival to the protection of the gods of Babylon. Maybe it's a festival to the coronation of Belshazzar, but it's a festival to the gods of Babylon. Now, you need to know the history here. Persia has come in, and they are ambushing and attacking Babylon. And as they're doing it, the very night, you, you know the rest of the story, the very night that Belshazzar is going to be destroyed and killed and his empire is going to be destroyed and taken over, that very night, Belshazzar is throwing a feast. Seems very foolish, but here's why he was doing that. With Persians outside of his walls who are you know, catapulting rocks and digging tunnels with Persians that he knows outside of his walls trying to attack, and he already knows that they've killed his dad, he's throwing a party. He's throwing a party. Why? He's trying to build the morale of his people. The palace that he is inside has six walls, and then there are two walls outside of those six walls, so he's saying there's no way that they're going to get to us. Babylon had anticipated a siege, so they had stockpiled over 20 years of supplies in the city. So go ahead, you'll wear out before we wear out. That's what they're saying, right? That's the main way you siege back then, is you find a way to halt uh, you know, making food, production of food, or getting water. And Babylon was able to stockpile food, over 20 years of food inside of their city, and they had also um, made the Euphrates River go right through Babylon. So they, they had all the water they needed. So we won't wear out, you'll wear out first. That's what he's saying. Sure, they're out there, but they can't beat us. Relax, Babylonians, we're safe. That's what this feast is about. Keep worshiping the gods of Babylon. But there's one last reason. So three reasons. Number one, maybe the coronation. Number two, this is a festival day anyway, and he's just praising the gods for their protection. But finally, number three, and this is where we get into the text here. Number three, Belshazzar is doing something very pointed, specific, and far more sinister than just a, a normal annual celebration. And you can see it here. Verse two, he tastes the wine, and he, bring, he says to bring the gold and silver vessels which Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple, which was in Jerusalem. This happened over 50 years before this event. And it refers to Nebuchadnezzar as his father. Father can mean father, it can mean grandfather, it can mean great-grandfather. In Aramaic, there actually isn't a word for grandfather. It's just father. And so father can be used for all of those things. So grandfather here is likely because Nabonidus, Belshazzar's father, married one of Nebuchadnezzar's daughters in order to strengthen his hold on the throne, and so that made Nebuchadnezzar Belshazzar's grandfather by marriage. So he takes the gold and silver vessels which Nebuchadnezzar, his grandfather, had taken out of the temple. You remember that back in chapter 1. Nebuchadnezzar had stolen all of those vessels from the temple to say, look, my God is greater than Yahweh. 
I can steal your things, Yahweh. If you were truly better than me, you would protect them and make it so that I couldn't touch them. But I stole them, so I'm better than Yahweh. Belshazzar is one-upping that by saying, not only am I going to steal them, he didn't steal them, they were stolen before, I'm going to feast on the day that we're celebrating the gods of Babylon. I'm going to feast using Yahweh's cups. I'm going I'm to drink the wine and get drunk using Yahweh's vessels to prove that my gods are better. They're superior. And there's one last issue here. We'll get to it in Daniel chapter 8, verses 1 through 20. Daniel's going to receive a vision where God explicitly says Persia's going to come in and destroy Babylon. And Daniel told Belshazzar that. They're going to, you're going to be destroyed by Persia. Also, in Isaiah chapter 47, verses 10 through 11, God had already prophesied, quote, you felt secure in your wickedness. This is to uh, Babylon. And you said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge have deluded you. You've said in your heart, I am, and there's no one beside me. But evil will come on you, which you did not, you will not know how to charm away. And disaster will fall on you, for which you cannot atone. And destruction is about to come, uh, which you will not know, and it will come upon you suddenly. Belshazzar knew that prediction. Belshazzar knew that prophecy. God had told Belshazzar, you're going to die. And so this feast is, number one, maybe a coronation feast. Number two, for sure, a festival to celebrate the gods of Babylon. But number three, this is a high-handed way of Belshazzar saying, your God doesn't exist. He made a prediction about me that's not going to come true. And I know that so much so that I'm going to drink from his cups and use his silverware and prove to those Persians out there they can't touch us. We are untouchable. Your God was wrong. I'll show you what I think of Yahweh and his prophecies. It's a personal attack on Yahweh. It's a personal affront to Yahweh. You, you could just see it, right? We're having a big festival, a big celebration. It's loud. And he just yells out, bring uh, the, the, the cups of gold, the goblets of gold. Bring out the silver. Bring out the bronze. Let's feast with those. And, and they're laughing together. And you can see him filling up his cup with wine and drinking it and slamming it down on the table. Another, because God of Israel is dead. There's no way he can destroy us. And this leads us to the first lesson about God's sovereignty in this text. Important lesson number one about God's sovereignty. God sees our sin as we are mocking his glory. God sees our sin as we are mocking his glory. Here's Belshazzar mocking Yahweh. And it seems like God isn't there. It seems like he doesn't care. It seems like he's not watching. It seems like he's not seeing. But there is no government. There is no individual who is beyond God's sovereign control and sight. No matter how defiant you may be, you cannot escape his notice and you cannot escape his judgment. All sin is stealing God's glory. It's trying to take God's glory away from him and bringing it to yourself. It's trying to establish yourself as king and not needing God. All sin is a dethroning of God. All sin is cosmic treason. And we might look at Belshazzar here and think, this is pretty gutsy. This sin is very externally defiant. But brothers and sisters, I want to remind you that every time you and I sin, it might not be externally this obvious, but internally, this is the exact same thing we're doing. We're taking God's things, we're setting them up as idols, and we're saying, I get to use this for myself because God, pretty much you're dead because you don't see my sin, you don't care, I get to make my own rules. And you have told me about my sin that these things would happen if I do sin and I don't believe you. Every time we sin, we are drinking from that cup and slamming it on the table and saying, God, you don't exist. This text also tells us that there is no human authority that will bypass being accountable to God. There is no human authority. There is no political ruler. This should be an encouragement and a comfort to us. There is no evil authority in this world that will not give an account on that last day. And maybe even before that last day. But personally for us as well, there is no way that we escape God's notice. Remember we read it last week, the eyes of the Lord run to and fro looking for those who he can strongly support 
His eyes are running to and fro, also knowing, seeing, looking for those who are stealing from his glory to stop them in those endeavors from taking other people down. God sits unmoved, undeterred, unchallenged. He sees it all. And even when we think we and our sin are winning, God says, I see what you're doing, and he will move in to stop. And that leads us to number two, truth number two. Number one, God sees our sin as we are mocking his glory. And number two, God confronts our sins. And we should tremble when he does. God confronts our sins, and we should tremble when he does. So we sin mockingly, uh, just trying to steal glory from God. And as we sin, God sees us. And in his grace and kindness, he will launch an all-out assault to get our attention and confront us. And when he does, it's not if, he will do that. When he does that, we should tremble. Verse 5. As they're drinking, the nobles, the wives, the concubines, they're drinking, they're praising the gods of gold, silver, and bronze, iron, wood, and stone. And suddenly, the fingers of a man's hand come out and begin writing opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. Suddenly, the party stops. I mean, just think about it. You've been in a busy restaurant before? Been in a busy restaurant where you can barely hear the other person? You're kind of yelling to try and be heard. Every other word kind of goes away. You can't really hear it. And then a waiter happens to drop a dish and it shatters on the ground and for about a second and a half, everybody turns and there's silence. And they look and then they go back to what they're doing. Just think about that moment of silence as the hand starts moving against the wall and a finger starts writing on the wall. Think about one person sees, the other person sees and we're going to see in the text and based off of our archaeological findings, this happened right next to Belshazzar. This probably happened right behind him. And so my guess is, as Belshazzar's drinking and enjoying his, himself, people in front of him looking at him see the writing. You ever had those moments where somebody's looking at you and then all of a sudden their eyes start to move up or over and you realize something's behind me, what's happening? And Belshazzar sees that, he turns, he looks, and he sees a hand writing letters on the wall. Deadly silent fear sweeps through the room as there's a a hand, the same fingers that wrote down the Ten Commandments on tablets of stone, writing behind Belshazzar's head. By the way, this isn't a vision. This isn't something that he is seeing as in a vision. This is a, a physical miracle because when it's done, it stays there on the wall, and Daniel's going to come in and he's going to see it. So it's not a vision. It's a physical miracle taking place. And it's happening opposite the lampstand. We're told where it happens. Verse 5, he began writing opposite the lampstand, on the back of the hand, didn't, the back of the hand did the writing, and the king sees that, sees that hand moving through. This is very interesting because opposite the lampstand, where the lamp is shining, where the, the lampstand is shining, it's the most well-lit portion of this building, of this space. And so God chooses the most well-lit portion for everyone to see it. And again, last century, this palace was discovered in the ruins of Nebuchadnezzar's palace, archaeologists have uncovered this throne room. We know, we've seen it, we know what this throne room looks like. It's 56 feet wide, it's 173 feet long, and halfway down the long wall, so if you go down the long wall, if you enter it this way, you go down the long wall, halfway down there's this little niche in the wall where the king would have sat with a table in front of him, and that entire niche is made out of a different material than the rest of the palace. Guess what it's made out of? It's made out of plaster. It's made out of the exact same thing that God says that's where he's writing. So right behind the king, right in this niche, right where the focal point of the whole room is looking, God starts writing. And he writes. And as he writes, verse 6, the splendor of the king's face changed. He has splendor, but nothing compared to God's splendor. And so as God's splendor. Notice Belshazzar has splendor in his face, that is completely outdone by the splendor of God's hand. Not even talking about God's face. We're talking about God's hand. Now, obviously, that's anthropomorphic because God the Father doesn't have a body, so uh, it's an anthropomorphism to say that he has this handwriting, but just uh, a, a measly portion of our bodies, uh, for God, it's more glorious than even Belshazzar's face. And it changes and his thoughts alarmed him. I, I wonder if he's thinking now, 
I'm in trouble. He knows exactly what he's doing. He's defying Yahweh. There's no way you can take us. There's no way your prophecy is going to come true about us. And he keeps drinking, and, and all of a sudden he looks at the wall and he goes, he's hearing me, he's seeing me, he's watching me, he notices me. I think he's terrified. I've offended Israel's God. And it says that as he's terrified, verse 6, his hip joints went slack and his knees were knocking against each other. You just can't improve on the King James Version here. The joints of his loins were loosed and his knees smote one against the other. Very interesting. Literally, the Aramaic is the knots of his loins were loosed. And some commentators say that that refers to his bowels or his bladder being loose. So it could be that he's lost control of his bodily functions because he's so terrified. His knees are knocking together. What an irony. He's declaring his autonomy by drinking down the wine in Yahweh's cups. And even as he's declaring his autonomy, judgment's already begun. Our culture does this. Our culture works very hard to celebrate its successes, to pronounce their own autonomy from God as creator, to declare that they have no need of God. And yet their judgment is fast approaching. So he calls aloud, verse 7, the king calls aloud. Literally, it's the Aramaic word for screamed. He screams, bring in the conjurers. He's terrified. Bring in the Chaldeans. Bring in the diviners. Bring in all the wise men of Babylon. We know this group, and we can already tell what's going to happen with this group, right? We know exactly how they're going to respond. He says, anyone who can read this writing and declare its interpretation to me will be clothed in purple. In the ancient world, purple was extremely rare. It was very expensive because it was hard to find the dye that would uh, dye the cloth that color. It actually came from a special kind of snail, uh, and only the richest people could afford it. So royalty wore purple. So he says, I'm going to make you as royalty. I'm going to give you a gold necklace, gold necklace that... Uh, was a chain that specifically represented you are royalty, your nobility. Only nobles would wear these things. And you'll be given authority. You'll rule as third ruler in the kingdom. Notice, third ruler in the kingdom. Why? Nabonidus is the first, Belshazzar is the co-regent, and you'll be the third, not the second. Remember when Joseph becomes second in command to Pharaoh? Why? Because there's no co-regent with Pharaoh. It's Pharaoh and then Joseph. But here, there's three, because it's Nabonidus, Belshazzar, and Daniel. And so... I'll give you the authority as the third highest, most powerful person in the land. So all the king's wise men, verse 8, come in, but they can't read the writing or make known its interpretation. We don't even have a response. They don't even say anything because we know the story. Daniel doesn't need us uh, to have more information. We already know what they're going to say. I don't understand how these guys keep their jobs. They have never once been successful, ever. And I love the way one pastor says this. I have to say, it's strangely comforting to know that bureaucracy is that old because only in bureaucracy are people paid to be this unhelpful, right? You do nothing. You stink at your job. You are unprofitable, and yet we'll let you uh, maintain your occupation. Why can't they explain it? We'll talk more about this next week. Maybe it's written in an older Phoenician style than they're used to. Maybe it was written top to bottom instead of across. So it's going to be written this way, or for you, this way. It's going to be written right to left, not left to right, uh, the way Hebrew would be written. That's going to be the Aramaic Phoenician way of writing it. But Jewish tradition says that God wrote it this way, up and down, so that it was confusing, so Daniel had to be brought in. Maybe that's the case. Maybe it's uh, that there are no um, vowels in the old Aramaic script, there's just consonants, and so maybe they're trying to piece it together, and as we'll see next week, they can piece it together as nouns, and they're just all forms of currency if you piece it together as nouns, so it would be reading, uh, you know, dime, dime, nickel, quarter, and you kind of go, what is that supposed to mean? Uh, but if you read them as verbs, and you understand where the, um, the vowel pointings are, then it's going to say exactly what Daniel's going to tell us. Also, it could be that they absolutely knew what it was saying, but they didn't want to make it known, because they knew what it was saying, that Belshazzar, you have been found wanting. You'll be destroyed this very night. Either way, because of their response that they cannot answer, verse 9, King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and the splendor of his face changed further. So he was pale before. Now he's like a translucent clear, right? He, he is just, all the blood is gone from his face because the people that he trusted in to make known the interpretation couldn't do it. And so, in a in terrified kind of rage, being greatly alarmed, 
He's hopeless, end of verse verse 9. Absolutely hopeless. And on cue, it just so happens. Those of you who have been with us for uh, uh, since the Ruth series that we did, you know that that phrase means a lot to our church. It just so happens. It's that phrase that Ruth uses in, in the book of Ruth to describe God's providence, that it just looks from man's point of view that it's just a, a, a sheer coincidence. But God is the one orchestrating. God orchestrated this. It just so happened that the queen enters the banquet hall. Now, this is probably not Belshazzar's wife. It would be a, an understandable reading of this because it's the queen and he's the king but most likely the queen's already there feasting uh, with everybody this is probably the queen mother uh, actually from the time of Josephus most commentators and scholars would believe that she's the queen mother not the wife of Belshazzar not the mother of Nabonidus she's the grandmother of uh, Belshazzar she died eight years before Um, So it's either one of two people. It's either Belshazzar's grandmother, the wife of Nebuchadnezzar, or more likely it's Belshazzar's uh, potential mom. So it's probably his mom, the the wife of Nabonidus, um, and that would have been Nebuchadnezzar's daughter. So there's a whole weird family feud going on here, and there's a weird family tree. Um, It's one of those, you know, remember those reports that we would write in school, our family trees, right? Their family tree is just a weird knots of all sorts of different things. And so it's her. She comes in. She enters the banquet hall, verse 10. And she says, O king, live forever. Listen to how grandmotherly this is, right? This is just like the beautiful mother aspect. This is Belshazzar's mom. This is totally a motherly kind of way of talking. Don't let your thoughts alarm you. Don't let the splendor of your face be changed. Don't worry, right? You could just see him. Oh, Belshazzar, don't worry. Everything will be okay. She says, you don't have to worry. You don't have to panic. There is a man, verse 11, in your kingdom, in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, illumination, insight, and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, are found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, or your grandfather, set him as chief of the magicians, the conjurers, the Chaldeans, the diviners. He had an extraordinary spirit, knowledge, insight, interpretations of dreams, explanations of enigmas, solving of difficult problems were found in him, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Let Daniel now be summoned, and he will declare the interpretation. Get Daniel. He'll tell you. Now, Belshazzar doesn't know Daniel. He's kind of relegated him to a retirement. Maybe when Nabonidus took over, usually when a new dynasty comes in, they change their leadership. And so probably Daniel had been thrust into retirement. He's about 80 years old at the writing of this, at the the experience and the encounter that he's going to have. And he's brought in before the king, verse 13. He's 80 years old. He's Aged, mature, calm, standing before this punk youngster who's drunk out of his mind and doesn't know what's happening. And Belshazzar says, verse 13, Are you that Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, whom my father the king brought from Judah? Are you that guy? You're a slave, right? That's who you are. You're that Daniel. This is purposefully derogatory. He's trying to say, remember, I'm in charge here. You're just a Jewish captive. I've heard about you, that there's this spirit in you, that you can tell me the dream. All of my wise men couldn't do it. But verse 16, I've personally heard about you. You can make the interpretations known. It's like he's saying, hey, I I know you can do those riddle things. If I tell you a riddle, can you tell me what it means? Purposefully derogatory. He has such disdain for Daniel And that's what I love about this interaction. Someone Belshazzar disdains is the only one who can help him. And so he comes in, and we'll see Daniel's response next Lord's Day. The irony, though, is Belshazzar thought Babylon's going to live forever and definitely will not die before Daniel does. But that's what's going to happen. Belshazzar's going to die before Daniel. The kingdom of Babylon's going to die before Daniel. Again, there are no untouchable earthly rulers. We don't need to fear them. When sin happens, God sees our sin, even as we are mocking him and trying to steal his glory, God sees it, and then number two, he's going to confront it, and he does so here by writing on the wall. He will confront it. He sees it, and he confronts it. We need not fear that the earthly rulers around us who are wicked and evil, that they are going to go free. That's not going to happen. 
They're also not going to be protected. It doesn't matter how big your weapons are, how big your walls are. Every human ruler lives in the palm of God's hand, and God can destroy them in an instant. Brian Chappell says, There is no human wall so high, no human accomplishment so great, that it is secure against the judgment of God. You cannot make yourself so secure that God, when he confronts you in your sin, that you will not receive judgment. How will Daniel respond to the king? What will he say? What will he not say? His response is amazing. Again, I think that this whole chapter needs to be taken as a whole, but his response is too amazing to pass up a whole sermon on it. So we'll see that next week. But as we wrap up this week, I love what Dale Ralph Davis says about this section, specifically in reference to the way that Belshazzar, in trusting his wise men and finding out that they failed him, and he's hopeless, and his face changes even further, and the splendor's gone even more so. Here's what Dale Ralph Davis writes. This is sometimes God's pattern to aggravate our helplessness by exposing the uselessness of our favorite props, even our favorite religious props. You may have your own paganism of choice, occultism, pluralism, agnosticism, moralism, and they will prove as petrifyingly useless as the Babylonian variety. God has frightened Belshazzar. Religion has failed him. He has been reduced to a shivering, sniveling mess with no support whatsoever. He is therefore on the edge of the abyss of hope. Whenever God brings a man to the end of himself, smashing all of his props and wasting all of his idols, it is a favorable moment indeed if he will but see it. You see, we're going to continue this next Lord's Day, and we will see that Belshazzar, in his pride, does not humble himself, does not repent. But in this moment, right here, he has an opportunity. As he's going to hear the word of God, as he's going to hear what God says, he has an opportunity, if he would but see it. My question to you this morning is, do you see it? Do you see your sin as a personal affront against Yahweh? Again, we look at Belshazzar, we say, well, that's a gutsy way to sin. But every time we sin, we are just as gutsy in our heart to think God's not watching, God's not seeing, God's not caring, and God will not confront. Every time we sin, we mock God's glory. Sin is never static. It never just stays the same. It's always moving, and it's always growing. And if you don't stop your sin, it will continue to grow and get bigger and bigger and bigger. And as we get bigger and bigger and more entrenched into our sin, our sin makes us completely unaware of the danger that we're in. That's why God's going to confront Belshazzar in this way. You're not even aware of the judgment that's coming to you. Sin makes us completely unaware of the danger we're in. We say a lot at our church, sin makes us stupid. It does. You guys remember the quote Karl Marx would say uh, that religion's the opiate of the people, right? Religion makes you so that you um, aren't aware of the danger that you're in. It puts you to sleep. I actually think sin is the opiate of the people. Sin puts you to sleep. Sin makes you unaware of the danger that's around you. And God is not static either. Sin is not static. As we go further and further into it, God will confront us. He's not static. He will confront us in our sin just like he confronted Belshazzar. And instead of writing on the wall, he's written the law on our hearts, right? Romans 2.15, he's already written something. With his finger on our hearts, he's given us the law that gives us a conscience that tells us if we've done what he said or if we failed, it excuses us, it condemns us. We've been given something that he himself has written upon our hearts. The question is, what are you doing with that? And then even more than that, he's given us his word, which he has written for us to receive, to hear, to, to take in, to be teachable under, to be humble under. God has done all of this, and just like we said about Belshazzar, God confronts sin, and we should tremble. So too, God has confronted us in our sin, and we should tremble. God sees our sin as a mocking of his glory, and God confronts us in our sin, and we should tremble over it. But brothers and sisters, don't stop at trembling. Don't stop at trembling. Let your trembling spirit cry out to Jesus for mercy. Let your legs, weak as they are, as you tremble over your sin, run to him. 
He's offered you a pardon, a full pardon, forgiveness in full, so that that sin that is a mocking of his glory would be done away with and removed. The penalty is completely destroyed, paid in full so that you and I don't have to. And then full pardon comes with it, a full, perfect, perfect record of righteousness, absolute perfection given to us. Don't stop at trembling. Don't stay terrified as God confronts you in your sin. Run to him because it is the kindness of God that leads you to repentance, not the terror of God that leads you. The terror can get you running, but it's the kindness of God that leads you to repentance to know that the the God of the universe who sees all of my sin, every single sin that I've ever committed, whether thought, deed, action, whatever it might be, he's seen it all and he still loves me. And instead of running towards you now in terrifying judgment, he's running after you now as a father pleading with his children, come home. I want to forgive you. And he's made that way possible at the cross. Even now he's offering full pardon, full forgiveness. He's written judgment, but he's worked out salvation for all who would place their trust in him. It is his kindness that would lead us to repentance. So as we stare at our sin and as we see him coming to confront it and we tremble at that confrontation, let's now look to Christ, the ancient of days, that there is none before him, none to come after, none higher. And he says, I will gladly stoop down. I will become human to live your life and to die your death so that you can be forgiven. That's why we have reason to rejoice, to celebrate, and with gratitude to say thank you. Father, we are so grateful for the the reality of you graciously confronting us. Sure, our sin might not be as extremely uh, obvious as Belshazzar's, but it's just as wicked on the inside. And sure, your confronting of us might not be as externally jarring as writing on the wall, but it's just as specific. And you and your grace have brought every single soul here. It's not chance, it's not luck, it's not coincidence. They're here today to hear this message that you see their sin and you are confronting it even now. And we should tremble. But Father, I pray that we would not stop at trembling. May we Allow the guilt that we feel over our sin to make us run to you. May we see that you have paid our penalty. What we owe, the justice that we uh, rightly deserve, the just punishment we rightly deserve has been poured out on Christ so that we can be forgiven. This is amazing grace. And so even now as we respond in song and we see you high, lifted up, exalted, May we be humbled and even in despair over our sin and how much of an an offense and a personal attack against you that it is. But then may we rehearse again and again the beauty of the gospel that you so loved the world. You gave your only son so that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. We pray these things in your name. Amen.